Welcome to 120 Outdoors, where we talk about how to enjoy the outdoor opportunities we all have close to home. If you love all things outdoors, this podcast is for you to get out and get more out of it. Welcome to 120 Outdoors. We've got a special one for you today, which includes something that's special to this time of year. The leaves are turning, the water's uh, getting cooler, and the temperatures are going the other way. And one of the things that uh, gets people's interest when that starts to happen is the steelhead uh, fishing that we have in our 120. Uh, It's something we have here and are very fortunate to have being adjacent to the Great Lakes. Uh, Many of the Great Lakes share a a similar uh, type of fishing with with fish that have been introduced from the salmoids, uh, trout, salmon, what have you. Yeah, but we we happen to have steelhead though and and it's a big addition to the the enjoyment we get to have uh, in the streams and we get to have it late into the year and all winter actually. Yeah, yeah the fish run all winter uh, as long as we have plenty of water which um, looks like we're getting water now, so uh, as long as it doesn't freeze up on us uh, too early, um, we definitely have a run of fish that came in uh, recently, and you're right, if the water levels up and we have some open water, they'll run all winter. You know, I fished January all the way through, you know, till May some years, so. Yeah, so if you think that summer brings an end to the fishing, uh, for many here who who know of the steelhead business, and Chris is one of them. I just get started. To, He's just getting fall. started. Yeah, That's just right. Just get started. That's right. So, anyway, with that in mind, Chris had a chance to sit down with the guy in our state, Ohio, Kevin Kale, formerly of the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. He's recently retired, but um, he had his hands on the wheel of the steelhead program and. Uh, kind of turned it into what it is. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He it was basically the gatekeeper for the for the steelhead program for a number of years. Done a tremendous job, and uh, he had some time in his calendar, and he was able to to sit down for an interview. So, so with that, uh, we had the man who knows and the man who knows what to ask about steelhead because he lives it in the fall, Chris. So. Um, Without any further ado, let's get to that interview. Okay, our next guest on 120 Outdoors is Kevin Kale, and Kevin is the Fish Hatchery Program Administrator for the Ohio Department of Natural Resources. And Kevin, from what I understand, first of all, welcome to the show, and secondly, uh, I understand you just retired, so congratulations on that, too. Thank you. Yep, it's been a great career. That's good. That's good. Can you tell us a little bit about how long you were working for the Ohio Department of Natural Resources and what your previous responsibilities were? Sure. I, I was with the Division of Wildlife for 36 years and started as a fish biologist in uh, the Akron District Office um, back in 1986 and immediately became involved with the Steelhead program. Um, and then in 1993, I took the supervisor's position up at Fairport Harbor, running the research station up there in the central basin of Lake Erie and uh, carried the steelhead program with me. <laughs> um, and then in 2015, um, I took the uh, administrator position over the fish hatcheries and uh, was program administrator for the fish hatch- for the six state fish hatcheries um, with the Division of Wildlife and was there until just till the end of August of 2021 when I retired. 
Well, very good. Um, and once again, congratulations on the retirement. Um, you know, we have quite a few listeners that are steelheaders like myself. Um, and they, you know, we wanted to have an expert on there. And I thought you'd be a perfect guest for this because of your background and how long you've been involved in the steelhead program in Ohio. Uh, can you give us a brief history of what you know, took place with the Ohio program? Because I think it's really interesting there and our listeners uh, have to understand a little bit about the background. Sure. Um, I Really, the, the program started a, a long, long time ago, back in the late 1800s, the 1880s. Um, it was typical for the Ohio Fish Commission to send walleye and whitefish and smallmouth bass west on train cars. And uh, we would get fish in return from other states uh, some of those uh, included rainbow trout, and uh, they'd come back to Ohio, and actually they'd stock them in Sandusky Bay in the Western Basin um, as fingerlings, and then wonder why the program didn't work. Um, but in the late 1960s, early 1970s, there was a move by all the other Great Lakes states to bring salmon uh, and rainbow trout from the West to try and control the, the burgeoning alewife population. You know, alewife's a forage fish. They grow out there by the billions and then have this habit of dying and washing up on shores. Um, so they wanted to stock a predator into the Great Lakes that would control those. Um, and typically it was coho and Chinook salmon, but there were also steelhead that were, you know, lake run rainbow trout that were brought back um, and stocked. And, uh, Ohio did the same thing. Uh, we would stock some of the tributaries in the central basin with fingerling or yearling rainbow trout um, and occasionally coho and Chinook salmon. And um, the biologists back at that time did evaluations and, and found out that we really weren't getting good returns out of the coho and Chinook salmon. So those programs were, were sidelined um, in favor of a, a program where we were stocking uh, fingerling rainbow trout, and when I came in in the 1980s, um, we did evaluations to look at the, the best time and, and size to stock fish. And back then, we had a domestic strain that we developed out of our London fish hatchery, mm -hmm. um, which is down in central Ohio. And we found out that by stocking those as yearlings, we would get far better returns and stock them at, at two-inch fingerlings. So these are fish that were about 15 to 16 months old. Um, and we found out that uh, we could raise them at London. Uh, we also had facilities at Kincaid, which is down in southwest Ohio. And then uh, the hatchery on Putin Bay uh, would also raise some fish for us. And we got to the point in the late 80s and early 90s where we were stocking about 400,000 of these London yearlings every year. And uh, we had heard that um, there was some research done in the Upper Great Lakes to look at uh, strain evaluations. So we're, we're always interested in getting the best bang for our hatchery buck. And we really have limited cold water facilities. So we talked to the, the other agencies and, and looked at their research and um, tried to look at a strain that would also give us better returns. And um, we talked to Paul Seelbach, who was one of the leading authorities up there at Michigan DNR uh, in their research department. And he tipped us off to the Little Manistee strain out of Michigan. And uh, they, they get wild eggs that come back um, from adults that come back to the, the weir at Little Manistee every year. 
And there was some thought that the, the wild heritability, you know, these fish had survived in the wild and, and came back to spawn, that they were far more suitable to conditions in the Great Lakes than a fish that had spent its entire life in a hatchery and was having eggs taken from this, this hatchery strain. So we did evaluations side by side with the Londons and the Manistees, and the Manistees were superior um, not only in providing better returns, but providing larger fish. So um, during the late 1990s, early 2000s, we shifted over completely to the Manistees. And uh, for a long time, we were stocked in between 400 and 450,000 Manistees a year. Um, during that time, we had four streams initially, um, the Rocky, the Grand, the Chagrin, and Conneaut Creek. And then we also added in the Vermilion River. Uh, and then recently, uh, as recently as 2017, we added in the Ashtabula River. Um, so we had those you know, Manistees sort of locked into the program. But then um, Michigan DNR started having problems up at their weird little Manistee. They weren't seeing the returns. They weren't getting the eggs. So we were forced to look elsewhere for other suitable strains in the Great Lakes. And we found two strains out of uh, Wisconsin. The Wisconsin DNR was taking eggs um, in the Brule and Root rivers. Um, and they let us know that they could uh, su supply us some eggs from the Ganaraska strain and the Chambers Creek strains. And we chose those strains because there were already track records uh, in Lake Erie, um, New York, Department of Environmental Conservation, uh, the DEC, uses the Chambers Creek strain. Um, that's their Washington strain fish that they take eggs out of the Salmon River for their program. And then Ontario MNR uses the Ganaraska strain um, in Lake Ontario and Lake Erie. So we had a track record there um, that would provide us some level of comfort saying that, you know, these fish would survive and, and do well in Lake Erie conditions. So in 2016, we stocked our first group of Ganaraska and Chambers Creek steelhead. And we were using those three strains to, to provide about 450,000 yearlings every year. Um, and then what happened was COVID in 2020, as I think everybody's aware. Right, right. Um, it, it really affected us from the production side of things because... Michigan and Wisconsin weren't able to go out and take eggs because they just weren't comfortable operating in, in COVID conditions um, and certainly allowing people to come up and get eggs um, or deliver eggs. So um, we were forced to look elsewhere um, for eggs in what would have been the spring of 2020. Um, and what that forced us to do was look to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, who had surplus eggs available. Now, these eggs are from a more domestic Shasta strain. So these are fish that have essentially spent their entire lives in a hatchery again. Um, but um, the Shasta strain and the Fish Lake strain, which is another domestic strain available to us from the Fish and Wildlife Service, carried us through these lean times during COVID. And we had stocked those fish out in 2021. And um, the plans for 2022, what we currently have on board, 
is a mix of manistees and shastas and fish lakes. So those fish will be coming out. Um, but it, the nice thing is by taking those eggs that were available to us, we didn't have a mix, missed cohort. So some of the other agencies across the Great Lakes kind of bit the bullet and didn't stock any fish out um, in 2021 and, and maybe stocking reduced numbers in 2022. But uh, we were able to, to meet program and we're currently on track right now for meeting program for the spring of 2022. Boy, that, that's interesting. I had no idea. I mean, uh, we all heard, of course, how COVID has affected everything. But I had no idea how much it, it's affected us um, here with the steelhead program. Um, so the fish that were stocked in 2020, you said it was the Shasta strain. Uh, those were those were fish that were eggs were taken in 2020 and stocked in 2021. Okay, 2021. Yeah. Okay, so the spring the spring of 2020, we still had some Chambers Creek. Correct. Okay, and the Manistee. Yep. Stri- okay, so yep. now that you got the eggs from the the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Um, do we rear those in the Castilia hatchery? Yeah. Okay. Ever since we we bought the Castilia hatchery from essentially from the bank back in 1997, mm-hmm. um, Castilia has become our, our sole hatchery for raising steelhead for the state of Ohio. Okay. Um, and we sunk um, probably close to, I think it was $5 million in a capital improvement to um, put in a new production building and cover the outdoor raceways that we have steelhead in. Mm-hmm. So um, it's really become the, the gem of our, our hatchery uh, system uh, for cold water fish. And uh, we raise all of our steelhead at Castelia as well as a majority of the rainbow trout for our catchable trout program statewide. Right. Yeah, that's very popular statewide for yep. sure. As far as that uh, the Castillo fish hatchery, then um, how long? So you get these these fish from the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. You get the eggs, I should say, right. in, in the spring of the year, and then you yeah. you keep them all summer, and then you'll stock them sometime the following spring. Is that what it is? Or that's correct. Yeah, okay, we've, we've done uh, back sort of in the early part of the the steelhead manistee program. Um, administrators wanted to know if you know we had to hold these fish for 12 months to get the best survival you know why couldn't we just stock them in the fall as fall fingerlings and uh, we did some side-by-side research there as well and that told us that by stocking the um, spring yearlings we were getting about eight times the returns compared to the fall fingerlings so um, it, it really uh is in the best interest of this program to stock steelhead um, in late April, early May. Um, and we try and get as many fish as we can up over six inches in length. And our target is between seven and eight inches in length. So we know that survival is is greatly improved by stocking these these larger yearlings compared to, to smaller fingerlings. Okay. Um, we will, in some instances, when we have surplus fish that that we need to sort of thin the herd of Castalia. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll stock them in the late fall, um, but we'll usually pick harbor locations to stock those um, because we don't want to stock them in, in river sections where we're going to have anglers catching them all fall and winter long. Um, it's just going to lead to increased mortality yeah. of those fish. So in, in general, our program is, is geared towards those spring yearling stockings. 
That that's very interesting because that was a big uh, misconception. I heard a lot of guys were asking, you know, how come we don't stock Ohio doesn't stock a fall in the fall for so we have a more of a fall run. Well, now mm-hmm. we now we know the reason for that is just the, yeah, there's just a and and the the strain we chose um, the manistee strain is is more of a winter spring run fish. Mm-hmm. Um, the the Londons were more of a fall winter. I um, mean that's just the way they were engineered. Right, Hatchery fish. You know, the fish that spends its entire life in the hatchery, you can be, they're pretty plastic and mm-hmm. you can move around their, their spawning window a little bit. But uh, these wild fish are, are more of a winter spring run. But that's not to say we don't get fish starting to, you know, show up in the harbors and move up river um, in November because they certainly do that. Yes, they do. Yeah, that, that leads me to my next question. As far as this Shasta strain, uh, what's the traits of that fish? Are you like you said? Is that a what you would say a plastic fish that will start? Yeah, they're they're, okay. they're more domestic, but the the eggs that we've received from the Fish and Wildlife Service um, were um, late winter, early spring. Okay. Uh, egg take. So you would expect that with that kind of uh, spawn timing that that we would see fish at about the same time, maybe just a little bit earlier. Than, than our wild strain fish. So okay, um, yeah, it's it's still a winter. What we would consider a winter run um, wouldn't be as early as the Londons, but you know we'll we'll see how they react out there in the wild. Yeah. Okay. Now the next question here, I just want to make sure our listeners are all clear on this because this is what we've had so many questions on. As sure. far, now, let's say this this year everything. Hopefully, we, we're through COVID and we start to see the light here, and we have a normal. Um, spring okay the hatcheries okay so we would ohio would then go back to stocking uh, a third a third of the stocking would be manistee a third would be the chambers creek and then it would be the ganarostic strain is that how you pronounce that ganaraska ganaraska strain yeah it's named after the ganaraska river over by um toronto ontario oh okay okay that's canadian okay okay so that that's the plan going forward correct Actually, the, the plan, what we typically do is we'll get, uh, in, and we're in the process right now, um, our hatchery coordinator uh, at Castalia is, you know, they make communications with Michigan DNR to get about half of our eggs from the Little Manistee Weir, and then another half from Wisconsin DNR up at Kettle Moraine State Fish Hatchery, mm-hmm. and out of that half, it's about half Ganaraska, half Chambers Creek. So um, it ends up being about half Wisconsin, half Michigan. Okay, that's cool. That's cool. Okay, that, that hopefully and, that answers that question now. Yeah, and the where we're heading into 2022 right now is we've got about almost half of the the fingerlings that are at Castelia right now are, are little manistees, and the other half uh, are shastas um but there's a small remainder of that fish lake strain okay which is another domestic strain and uh that that'll get us up to a little bit over 450 460,000 on station right now so uh, again we've been lucky that that we haven't had a reduced or or missing cohort um in the mix of the the program no, definitely. Believe me, we appreciate it too that you guys waited to miss a year here. That's for sure. Uh, now, the next question I have, you know, deals with 
I know you and I talked off, off air a little bit about last spring. Um, and I don't know if the listeners have had a chance to enjoy um, the fishing we had last spring here in Ohio. It was phenomenal. Uh, and you and I talked a little bit about that. What, what caused that? Uh, and I'm not complaining, believe me. Uh, sure. I, like I said, I had to pinch myself a couple times. The fishing was so good. But there were so many big fish in, in just about every river I went to uh, along that, our steelhead alley, if you want to call it that. Right. What caused that? What just everything came well, together perfectly? Sure. Good, good river conditions um, across all of our rivers. Um, but I think w- once you go back and look at the stocking records and, and typically we would see in our fishery fish that have spent two, three and four summers out in the lake. Um, but fish can generally spend up to six or seven summers in the lake till they're kind of out of the, out of the mix in the runs. But if you look at our stocking numbers, um, three, four five years ago, we, we really had good solid numbers of not only manistees, but Ganaraskas and Chambers Creek too. So uh, it's these fish coming to maturity and sort of, we're sort of hitting on all cylinders right now. And then we've got good fishing conditions on top of that, that they really allow us to have all these big fish in the system. And the other thing is too, the, the fishery is sort of self-balancing in that we've got a lot of anglers out there that practice catch and release. Mm-hmm. Um, in our creel surveys, when we were out there interviewing anglers, in the streams, about 90% of the fish caught are being returned. So that, and if they're done right and under the, the prime conditions, that allows those fish to run up the rivers more than one, uh, more than one season. And that'll lend itself to, to having a lot of big fish available to anglers. So um, it's, it's definitely a bonus that, that we look at having these fish in the system for a long time you know five summers is a long time out there for these fish yeah they can get to 30 to 35 inches over that time period jeez that's a big fish on a on a fly rod too you know that's uh unbelievable that you kind of answered my one question um now let's say the fish that we stocked um and I know this is kind of weird because we're using the shasta strain and everything else but normally let's say like the manistee strain the, mm-hmm. the fish that you would stock in the spring, how many years do they, you mentioned they might go five or six years. Does that mean they don't return to the river that they were stocked in for five or six years? There will be some fish that just decide to move near shore and don't make their spawning movements upstream hmm. that year. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of that's going to be flow dependent. Um, what the forage base is like near those, they, they may not see the need to, or um, you know, desire to spawn that hmm. year. Um, and, and we see that with now more often with um, the research that we do on our native fish. You know, they, they don't spawn every single year either. Hmm. So um, with that in mind, you know, we may see steelhead just kind of hang out and put on the weight and then move back out offshore come spring. Um, but unlike some of the other Pacific salmonids like a Chinook or a Coho, then, you know, once they decide to go up river, those species are going to go up and die. Um, but steelhead, if, you know, they're in good fitness and uh, survive that, that river transit 
upriver, then they can move back downstream and, and do it again in subsequent years. So, hmm. uh, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Interesting. Okay. I think that answers that question. Uh, you know, then that next question deals with, um, this is kind of as far as imprinting in the streams. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you and I kind of touched on that before we got on air here. Um, how far upstream do we have to stock a steelhead for it to get that imprinting? Like, let's say in Conneaut Creek, do you have to go a mile upstream or two miles upstream? Yeah, what we we have partnered with our other agencies uh, across Lake Erie to to look at research. Um, to perform studies that, that look at where the best locations to stock fish are. And our technique in Ohio um, involves finding uh, boat ramp access um, that's upstream from the river mouth, but not too far upstream. Um, we used to stock fish up at Mason's Landing, which is, oh, I would say a good 15 river miles upstream. Yeah, that's way um, up, up there. Up there by Vrooman Road. Yeah. Um, and what we found out is those fish would, you know, kind of lollygag around up there. Um, some would move upstream into some of the smaller tributaries, and then the water levels would drop in the spring and they'd get warm. Mm-hmm. And then we'd end up with essentially boiled fish. You know, they, they can't withstand water temperatures in the summer in the 70s and 80s. So, right, right. Um, so we found locations in all of our rivers that are about, oh, three to five river miles upstream. Um, they're not at the river mouth. Um, if you stock them right at the river mouth, they really don't get a chance to imprint on that river. Um, it's a process called smolting. Okay. Um, so in the Grand River, we stock them at the St. Clair boat ramp, which is about a little over three river miles upstream. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got locations at, at all of our rivers. On the Vermilion, um, there's a boat ramp at the Verm- Vermilion Municipal Park boat ramp. Um, that's a couple river miles upstream. On the Rocky, it's at Emerald Necklace boat ramp. That's a couple river miles upstream. Uh, the Chagrin, we look for a marina or boat ramp around Lakeshore Boulevard. Mm-hmm. Again, a couple river miles upstream. Ashtabula River, we're stocking... Um, by the, the hospital area there at East 24th. Okay. So again, that's like three or four river miles upstream. And at Conneaut Creek, we're stuck at Woodworth Road boat ramp, um, which is okay. about three miles upstream. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the interesting thing about Pennsylvania is um, because it's uh, a shared watershed with Pennsylvania, the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission also stocks Conneaut Creek but they stock way upstream in their portion of the watershed. And um, we've done some research with Pennsylvania and uh, Bowling Green State University um, to look at uh, out of those fish that we stocked and Pennsylvania stocked, um, contributions and run timing um, from our fish and Pennsylvania fish. And we saw um, both strains you know, moving up into the river. And the Pennsylvania strain went all the way upstream back to where they were stocked. So wow. uh, that was an interesting bit of research for us. Yeah, that, that could explain it, Conneaut. Um, and I know you fish Conneaut quite a bit too, especially in the fall of the year. If we get enough water, those fish move in. And oh yeah, and you, you'll find in a certain area of the, the river, 
one day and then next day they may be 10 miles upstream, you know, right. yeah. uh, they move quickly. And I, I didn't realize uh, they had that kind of success with return. That's interesting. Um, mm-hmm. As far as the imprinting goes now, um, and I know not every fish, let's say if they, they were stocked in Astabula um, and their imprinting basically is from Astabula, that doesn't mean they won't go into some of the other rivers, correct? That's true. Okay. That's true. Um, well, we've looked at some of the bin clipped fish and, and marked fish um, back in the Oh, early 1990s, and then again in the late 90s and early 2000s, we saw about one out of seven, one out of eight fish stray into another river. Uh, And those fish will stray because um, the conditions in their home river aren't ideal for them to move upriver. They're either blown out or too low. And uh, a fish will, you know, look for the right flow conditions and the right forage nearby to decide to move upriver. So, and that's not to say that that a fish that, you know, moved into the lower portion of the river, say in uh, October or November, doesn't decide to move back out and then move up another river to spawn again in, uh, you know, March and April. Um, There is that kind of mobility associated with fish. Hmm. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, Now, as far as another question from one of our listeners, as far as, um, and believe me, I'm thrilled with what you guys are doing, but have we looked at maybe... Uh, a brown trout. Um, I know we're doing some work with the, the lake trout in Lake Erie. Um, right. And, and we, we've looked with our partners uh, on lake trout because it is a native trout. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do have some historical records of them spawning in the central basin and even as far west as Kelly Island Shoals over by the islands. Wow. So, um, and this year, um, this past summer, was the first year that New York DEC was able to document uh, natural reproduction of lake trout um, for the first time in in decades. So um, I think with sea lamprey control and continued stocking of of lake trout, um, we're building that population back up to where we're starting to see some natural reproduction success. Uh, And that's good, hopeful news there. Oh, absolutely. as far as uh, brown trout, we know that Pennsylvania and New York stock a, a small number, you know, 20 to 50,000 a year. Uh, we did some evaluations back in the late 1990s um, to, to look at brown trout, and, you know, our returns were pretty poor. We would have to stock about 14 times the number of brown trout to get the same return out of a, a, a steelhead. So, um, it's just not in our best interest to to play around with brown trout when we've got sort of limited resources and limited space for our steelhead program. We're we're not going to sacrifice steelhead program or a portion of the steelhead program for a you know a less than ideal return out of brown trout. So um, we'll stick with steelhead. <laughs> no, that's good. That's good because it's funny because I have taken a few brown trout out of Conneaut early in the season, mm-hmm. not recently. Yeah, it's been, are, you know, our wanderers from Pennsylvania. Okay. New York, okay. You typically see that. Um, not only that, but uh, also in the West, if you would say catch one in the Rocky or the Vermilion or even Cold Creek, um, some of the trout clubs in the West on Cold Creek have brown trout. And okay. they escape Cold Creek and, and go out into Lake Erie. And sure. Okay. That's how they get out there. Okay, as far as the um, lake trout program goes in the lake trout itself, they, they 
don't run up the rivers, correct? They mainly spawn no. on reefs and on they shore. Very rarely run run into the lower sections of the rivers. Um, we typically see them in the harbors and along the break walls in uh, October and November um, as they, they would come into the shoals to spawn okay. rather than move up river. Okay. So they fall, they spawn in the fall of the year. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they're, okay. They're a fall winter spawner. Okay. Then the other question, I know just this summer, some more good news about Lake Erie and in our uh, program there, um, the pink salmon program, which we don't stock at all any longer. Correct. Uh, that state record was broken this summer. Yeah, it was. Um, and we see them kind of wandering around the Great Lakes, and they'll they'll move into the the lower river sections um, this time of year, late September through oh mid November. And that that wandering population, they they tend to run on alternate years. So um, <laughs> we'll see them this year, and we won't see them again for another two years. Um, that that's just one of those weird spawning vagaries that that they have alternate year runs um, with the strain that's that's pretty much established out there in in all the Great Lakes and um, and in Lake Erie primarily. Interesting, yeah, because I've I heard some some stories about those you know, the pink salmon yep. too. Um, as far as natural reproduction, I know you kind of touched on this. We have obviously limited natural reproduction in Ohio. That's why we're stocking the number of fish. But um, right. can you shed a little light on that? Do we have uh, some areas that we, and not that we want to reveal what area, uh, sure. we have some natural um, reproduction? Uh, and, and I can speak in generalities too. Okay. You know, it's, it's not, our main rivers are mostly shale and slate based. Um, they've got a lot of um, surface waters, surface water contributions. Mm -hmm. So that means during the summer, um, the these rivers get really warm, but th there are some smaller tributaries to these main rivers that, that have good gravel and cobbles and have small spring seeps of, of spring water that can keep, we really need temperatures to, to remain in the 60s all summer long mm -hmm. um, and have good gravel, good cobble for um, egg and, and juvenile fish survival. And then they have to have a good canopy over them. Um, good undercut banks to to really allow those juvenile fish to survive and we just don't have a lot of those kind of streams um, a lot of uh, rivers don't have these small tributaries that they tend to have tribs that are flashy or in worst cases you know around lake and uh, Cuyahoga and Lorraine counties are all developed so they tend to be warm and flashy and silty and, and sandy so um, we do have some small tributaries that, that do allow um, survival of naturally reproduced steelhead, but th there's not a lot. Um, the cohorts that are produced are, are relatively small and inconsistent. So we look at these wild fish as a bonus to our fishery, not something we would ever base the program on. Okay, so that's nothing we could really count on every year, obviously. Right, that's okay. correct. Okay, that's interesting. Um, just you mentioned that you you partner with the other Great Lakes states in the Providence of Ontario. Is that something that goes mm -hmm. on on an annual basis? Do you guys share best business practices? Sounds like you do. Oh, sure. Um, uh, within the the auspices of the the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, uh, they're the group that has taken up responsibility to control sea lamprey in the Great Lakes. Um, but within the the Fishery Commission, there's a Lake Erie committee. Um, and on that Lake Erie committee, there's representatives from 
uh, each of the states uh, and the province of Ontario. And um, we govern and sort of uh, trade information so that, you know, there's this holistic management of Lake Erie and the other Great Lakes so that we're not, you know, running cross currents um, so that we're protecting populations when they need protected. Uh, there are task groups um, for the specific fisheries um, and within steelhead that falls under the cold water task group. But there's also forage task groups um, and walleye and yellow perch task groups that um, help advise these uh agencies and the Lake Erie Committee as to what the best regulations, what the best quotas would be to make sure that the populations stay healthy. Um, and um, within the, the auspices of the Coldwater Task Group and the Lake Erie Committee, we trade information on what's being stocked by the different agencies. Um, and we generally seek the approval of the Lake Erie Committee when we stock fish. So we wouldn't change our program to suddenly stock 800,000 steelhead and a bunch of Chinook salmon and, and any of that without going to the, the Lake Erie Committee first for um, sort of tacit approval um, because we're all managing this fishery and, and the lake holistically. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to crash the forage base um, and have some impact on our native fishes. Um, by stocking too many of these um, exotic species like steelhead and, and some of the other fish that are being stocked in Lake Erie by, by different agencies. So, yeah, we, we're constantly um, interacting with the other agencies. And one of the other things we're trying to do is, you know, we sponsor and uh, oversee research programs. One of the things that we were trying to get in Lake Erie was a research program that would have all of the steelhead stocked during one cohort year tagged um, and then watch as these fish would move around out there in Lake Erie and come back to their streams so that we would know, you know, what's survival like, what's growth like, are fish coming back to their stocked streams, how much do they move around. Um, we're all interested in in managing this steelhead fishery holistically as well. So that's one of the things that was on our radar as, as I was walking out the door. And I, I think that the, the biologists and the managers that are, are still involved in the steelhead program would like to, to be able to move forward on that kind of research in the future. Yeah, that's really encouraging. You know, and a lot of the listeners, they, are, they were not aware of that, including myself. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't realize you guys were working so closely with the neighboring states in the, in the Providence of Ontario. That's, I think that's really interesting stuff. And it shows um, you don't have somebody on, on their own agenda doing what they want to do. Like you mentioned, they're not stalking a million cohos now because they, they just want to do it. You know, there has to right. be and, reasoning behind it. So. And I think the, the research that we've done on Lake Erie has pointed out the, the success and has bolstered the success of the Steelhead program across what we now know as Steelhead Alley. And the other agencies have also uh, gone the way of Ohio and no longer stocking coho salmon or Chinook salmon. Um, and we've, I think that the benefit has been to provide a quality steelhead fishery where we're stocking about 2 million steelhead uh, across all the agencies uh, in Lake Erie for about the last almost 20 years now. 
and I think the program has really benefited from that uh, movement by all the agencies and, you know, focus in stocking a, a quality program of yearling steelhead uh, and providing opportunities that way for, for all the agencies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you guys really have developed a quality program. It's, and I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you before, but uh, last spring alone, I've, I've met people from several different states um, as far away as the providence of Quebec, believe it or not. Sure. Um, Ontario, I had folks from Kentucky I ran into and Colorado, uh, mm-hmm. Indiana, Illinois, of course, Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Yeah, but it, it's amazing that the, the draw we have now with this steelhead program. Yeah, the last time we did comprehensive creel surveys uh, and talked to anglers, you know, one-on-one out there in the streams, um, we had them from literally every county in the state of Ohio, 39 states, <laughs> as well as uh, Canada, and we had a few people from, from overseas as well, one from Scotland. Wow. You know, coming coming to fish Steelhead Alley. So. We, we know the, the scope of the program and the opportunities we're providing, um, and we want to make sure that, that we continue to provide a, a quality experience for all of our anglers. No, it's it's an unbelievable fishery. It really is. Um, I have just, I, I could keep you on here all day, just so you know, Kevin, but I, I'm not going to do that to you because, I mean, I love talking. I'm retired. I'm ready to go fishing. Yeah, I know. You and I are both are ready to go. Um I'm just a steelhead junkie, I guess you could say, and I love talking sure. about it. It's just such a neat fishery. Um, and this is kind of a general question that went from one of our listeners, um, and it's it sounds basic and simple, but it's not. You know, what triggers the run? Sure. Um, part of it is the, the strain of fish, knowing that these fish are, you know, that their prime opportunity for spawning would be winter through early spring. Um, but they're looking... The, the fish are looking for flow conditions. Um, so are the rivers blown out or are they low? Um, they're they're going to look for um, sort of the receding um, flows after a blowout condition. Obviously, they, they don't want to try and move upstream when it's going to really test their physical ability to, to move forward. But as those streams sort of hit a, a, a window, um, an opportunity for them to move upstream. They'll move upstream, but uh, it's also water temperature dependent. So as temperatures um, start to drop off in the in the fall, that's going to send a signal um, out there. And lake conditions, you know, the lake conditions this time of year are cooling. They're seeing forage fish start to move near shore. Um, so they're going to follow that forage. Um, photo period also has a, a good deal of um, say in, in you know, the, the day-night cycle. So as the nights start getting longer, days are getting shorter, that's sending them a signal as well as the temperatures and the flow rates um, and those forage fish moving close to shore. That'll, those things all stack up into to sending them in the vicinity. And then when the, the flow conditions get right and really as they mature. So you've got fish that are maturing, they're undergoing uh, hormonal changes. They're getting ready to make their spawning runs. Um, and then there'll come a time as, as they move into fall and winter that, you know, it, it signals these fish, hey, it's time for me to be moving upriver to, to get ready to spawn. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think that gives our listeners a good uh, basic, I shouldn't say basic, but a good view of what actually happens on the run 
or when sure. it starts. So that's good. Um, I just one more one more question for you. Sure. Um, as far as and this is just like a a future a look at the future here. Five years from now, in your opinion, where do you where do you think the steelhead program will be here in Ohio? Um, it's probably not going to be much different than what you see right now. Um, hopefully, our, our partners uh, continue to allow us to to uh, get eggs from them out mm-hmm. of Michigan and Wisconsin. Um, it and there's been a general question: Why doesn't Ohio take their own eggs? Uh, it would really take a, a totally new infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So we would have to set up a weir on one of our rivers. Uh, we would have to start an egg take program. Um, and in doing that, we would have to close off a section of river to our anglers and we would have to do a bunch of additional fish health testing, um, on those fish that we're taking eggs from, uh, we'd have to set up some kind of facility where we're holding fish because we're not going to get all the eggs, um, all of the milt from the, the males, mm-hmm. uh, that we would want at one time. So we would have to hold these fish, uh, on station somewhere, um, either, alongside a river or at our hatchery so um we've gone sort of down those initial roads to look at that and as long as we've got partners that can continue to provide us eggs that will give us good returns um we're going to stick with that program and uh, i've I've tried to communicate that to whoever's going to be involved with the divisions program um now that i've sort of left the left the gate and <laughs> left it open to, to additional researchers and managers. So uh, I think they're going to be more at comfort with managing the program. Um, we'll probably be somewhere in the ballpark of 450 to maybe 475,000 fish. Um, one of the questions we have is just the number of streams we continue to stop. Mm-hmm. Um, those six streams that we have right now have, have really been the the bulk of our program for the last five years Um, we were kicking around the idea of stocking the Cuyahoga River Uh, we wanted sort of a clean bill of health for the river it was listed as an area of concern for you know the last couple decades Mm -hmm. Um, but the river is being cleaned up Um, dams are being removed we just had the Brexville dam uh, at Route 82 um, removed Mm -hmm. uh, last year and uh, it's starting to, to heal and become uh, more of a free running river through that stretch. Uh, we know that there's a just a gob of uh, public access through the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. Um, and we have to enter into discussions with the National Park because they have different regulations there. They don't allow live bait, but they've got miles and miles of public access that that would certainly be a boon to the, the steelhead fishery there. So, um, and we will, we've always, um, as long as I've been involved with the program, uh, engaged our anglers in, in moving forward with the program. We're, we're not an, an agency that, that dabbles in this and that, you know, we're, we're not a, a program that, well, why don't you just try this? We, we kind of move at a, a glacial pace, but we want to make sure we're making the right decisions to provide the best opportunities for our anglers. So, you know, somewhere in the next five years, we'll we'll engage our anglers and talk about how we move forward with the Cuyahoga and, and how we distribute fish across, you know, six or maybe seven different streams uh, moving forward. So uh, I think that's where the program's going to go. Uh, maybe by then we'll, we'll have that uh, research program in place that'll that'll look at one or two cohorts across 
all the different agencies and in all the rivers that we stock. So um, we'll see how that moves forward. Yeah, so the future does look bright for Ohio's program and for Lake Erie, quite honestly. Yep. Yeah, that's great. Well, Kevin, really, I don't want to keep you on here any longer. As I mentioned, you and I could talk all day, uh, but we do have some limited time here. But I want to thank you again uh, for everything, um, your expertise in this subject. And we've got so many listeners that are really into the steelhead. So I think this will be exactly what they're looking for. So thanks again for your time. Sure. Happy, Happy to be along. Okay. Well, maybe I'll bump into you in the streams here sometime this fall or winter or spring next year. Yep. We'll be there. Yeah, Happy I'm st- to talk with folks about it. Very good, Kevin. And thank you again for your, your time this morning. Sure. Thanks, Chris. Okay. Well, Chris, I learned some things about the steelhead. Uh, I I didn't know quite all the nuts and bolts that I'm sure you already know and, and Kevin knows, uh, like the back of his hand, but uh, that was uh, that was interesting. Yeah, and we had some good questions from from some of our listeners, too. Um, a little more complicated, uh, some of those questions, than I thought they would be. And I had some of the stuff I did have a general knowledge of, but a lot of it was, was new to me, too, Don. So don't feel bad that you were not the only one that uh, some of that stuff was new to. So, But uh, I think everybody has heard, heard the interview, knows Kevin's done a tremendous job. We have a heck of a fishery here uh, in the Great Lakes, better known as, or Lake Erie, better known as Steelhead Alley from Cleveland to Buffalo. Um, all three of those states, it is a tremendous fishery. Yeah, you know, they, um, uh, they've they been here so ever, they're ubiquitous to the fishing that we have in the area, but he made a reference to them being exotic, and I never really thought of them as that way because they've been around. But the reality is they weren't here uh, from the right. beginning of time. Right. They right. had to be introduced. And, now, uh, lake trout, they, they were native to, or are native to Lake Erie, mm-hmm. and they're reintroducing the lake trout. But you're right, the, the steelhead or lake run rainbows, as they call them, uh, were introduced many, many years ago, as he said, over 100 years ago, just in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I think Pennsylvania even has the programs that are even a little older in Pennsylvania. Yeah, with good purpose to, right, to, right. to accomplish a job. And, and boy, we've benefited by the, uh, the great fishing that comes with that. So Yeah. Yep. So hopefully uh, uh, you folks learned something about steelhead or a little bit more about steelhead fishing and you get, get out there and enjoy it. Yeah, it's a fascinating subject and, yeah, it uh, is. and a big addition to uh, what we get to enjoy. Yeah, yeah. So hope you enjoyed that. So now we're going to shift a little bit here. To, uh, Don, we're going to jump into what your rant is this month. Oh, yeah, rant. Uh, I, 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 I tend <laughs> to always have one. And, and today's no exception. Well, you know how uh, some things you just can't unsee, Chris? Yeah, unfortunately, well, yes. Yeah. Uh, for me... That thing that I can't unsee is every time I get in the car or set foot in the woods, I run past invasive species. I, I can't escape them. Uh, I, I came over here for us to do this uh, tonight, and dang if those phragmites weren't in the culvert along the road here. Yeah. Uh, on my way home from work, I saw them. Yeah. Our last trip to your farm, you know, we, oh, yeah. we drove past a mile of them. Oh, miles and miles of them. Yeah. yeah. Now, that's just one. Uh, in, in the park where I like to walk, uh, Japanese knotweed is rampant. Uh, it's everywhere. Not too many people, you see this stuff and say, well, there's green plants. What's, what's so wrong with that? I mean, I see green. I don't see green. I see invasive species that are robbing us. They're robbing you, they're robbing me, and they're taking away uh, the food that our wildlife would be eating and 
and doing what it should be doing. We've talked in the past about the virtues of native species uh, and all the good that they bring. Well, all these invasive species displace those native species. Right, right. So, so they're terrible. They're everywhere. I see them every time I touch the steering wheel or put my boots on, and, uh, and it chafes me. Now, that's just one. Uh, the other one, uh, I'm talking about uh, invasive plants. Another invasive plant we're dealing with locally here, we have hydrilla, an invasive aquatic plant. It's in a couple of our lakes nearby, and who knows how far that's going to spread. And what that's going to amount to is diminished uh, fishing opportunities for us because of the mats of weed, invasive weed, and the additional cost that it's going to put on our uh, ODNR to, to deal with. Um, so, uh, again, we're being robbed because those are dollars that could be spent for our outdoor recreation that now got to be spent to deal with this weed control to deal with this invasive. Another one, and I could fire these all day, and I'm not going to fire them all day. Uh, you've probably heard of the emerald ash borer. Yep. Uh, We've seen the devastation in our neighborhoods. We've seen it at your farm. We've yep. got dead ones there. Yep. Uh, they've killed ash trees to the tune of in excess of $10 billion, and that was just through 2019. Uh, that's continuing. So I could go on and on and on, but I'm not going to go on and on and on because this is a little bit of a, a uh, forecast for what we're going to be talking about in 2022. It's such a deep subject and one we we can't uh, we can't deal with at one sitting because there are so so many in so many different different ways. Um, we're gonna throw some uh, some podcasts at you in 2022 to deal with that. Now I've mentioned about um, uh, invasive plants that are invading our wetlands, culverts, and and parks and whatnot. Uh, I mentioned about invasive uh, aquatic weeds that are invading our lakes. Mentioned about the uh, invasive insects. Uh, emerald ash borers, one, we've already suffered financial loss to, because of that. There's another one you might hear in the news, the spotted lanternfly. Who knows how much damage it's going to do. It's just getting revved up. Uh, that's another bad one. Uh, we've had zebra mussels and gobies in our Great Lakes, which... Uh, you could say they've made big changes that are challenging for our fish management people. Lampreys, we talked about yeah. lampreys. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it just goes on and on. Yeah. But anyway, like I said, we're not going to go on and on today, but we're going to throw a few of those at you in 2022. No, I think that'd be a great idea, Don. You know, so talk about invasive species, you know, at a higher level for sure. Yep. So anyway, one of the things I hope to accomplish as we approach this is get people to understand that these things are there and that they shouldn't be there. And to a certain extent, we don't have to accept them. You know, some of these things have taken over and they're very difficult, but it's not insurmountable to deal with them. But uh, if you don't know what to deal with or, uh, or see it, then it's not there, you know. Right. That's so. right. So anyway, 
That's my grief. You know, uh, I don't know if you saw the movie The Sixth Sense. Do you know what the, the guy's grief was in that? No, I don't. He saw dead people. Oh, geez. So anyway, for me, I, I see invasive species. I can't look around without seeing them, yeah. and it aggravates me. Yeah. No, I think it's a great idea for so, a podcast, so. for sure. So anyway. Good rant. That's the deal. Yeah, I like that. Good rant. So anything else, Don? That's it? That's it. I am. Okay. I'm not going to go overboard today. All right. Well, that's it for this month, folks. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the podcast about steelhead and Don's rant about evasive species. And uh, just to let you know, the next podcast we have lined up for the month of December, right, would be uh, we're going to talk about kayaks. We have a, uh, an interview lined up with uh, an expert on kayaks and kayak fishing and hunting. And um, I think that'll be appropriate for the upcoming holiday season. So in the meantime... Get out in your 120 and enjoy the great outdoors.